Am I coming through? Yep. Beautiful. There's a, um, you know, as, as you grow in life and, and, and things change, um, there, there's, there's certain passages of Scripture that, you know, that, that you gain more perspective on as, as, as life circumstances change. You know, maybe there's stuff that you didn't understand as a, as a kid that you understand as an adult. Maybe you have an experience serving in a way that somehow relates to biblical times. Maybe, you know, you traveled to Israel and you saw things that Scripture only describes with words with your own eyes and it kind of shapes the way that you look at certain passages. Um, for me, um, f- kind of fatherhood is one of the things that really has shaped me, right? Becoming a dad is one of the most life-changing things in the world that, that can happen to, to a guy. Um, you know, who you marry is, is important, but you get to choose them. You don't get to choose your kids. And so you, you learn a whole lot about life and about what's important and your priorities and all these kinds of things shift when you have a kid. You know, before it was about, you know, Berta and I's goals and what we want out of life. And now, you know, I'll, I'll eat ramen noodles to make sure my kid can go to college someday because they're far more important. And so the perspectives of life start to shift in the way that we look at things change when we have kids. But one of the things I didn't expect was that having a kid would change the way that I think about who God is and how I relate to him. Right? See, there's, there's like all these metaphors that God uses when, he, when he's on earth, especially as Jesus in his ministry on earth is teaching people. He uses these metaphors that make sense to the people that he's talking to. So when he's talking to peasants, he uses farming analogies like lost sheep. Or when he's talking to a poor widow who uses analogies, you know, like lost coins. All these, all these ways that Jesus teach, teaches have this kind of relationship to the people that he's talking to or about, and it, and it hits home. So a shepherd would understand things the way that no one else could when he teaches. But one of the analogies that God uses more than anything throughout all of Scripture, both God the Father throughout most of the Bible and Jesus in his, in his ministry on earth, is the relationship of son and father. He uses that imagery. Now, you think about this. God is not like our, our biological father. It's not, it's not a literal God is your daddy, right? But he uses the imagery of father to communicate how he functions in relationship to us. And he uses sons, and we can say daughters too, right, to, to, to communicate the way that we relate to him. And, and that's one of the things that I never really fully understood until I became a dad myself. It shapes you. It changes you. It causes you to look at that metaphor and that teaching in a new light. And so this morning, we're looking at a passage that has one of those metaphors. Right? We're looking at the, the prodigal son this morning. We've been looking for the past few weeks at the lost parables of Jesus. Week one, we looked at the lost sheep. And we looked at how God, even when there's 99 safe on the inside, if there is even one on the outside, the Lord will, will leave the 99 and go tend to the one. And then last week, we looked at the lost coin, and the lost coin is kind of the same point, but the coin is lost inside the house. And so we talked a little bit about how God focuses on the lostness inside of his own house, those of us who know him and and feel at times distant and lost from the Lord. Today, we're going to look at this last lost parable. And again, remember, the whole set of three is part of an answer to the question that the Pharisees pose, right? Jesus is having dinner with all these filthy people, these sinners and these tax collectors, and they, 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 the Pharisees come up and they go, Jesus, you're a rabbi. Why would you lower yourself and spend any effort, time, or, 
or, or kind of cap, you know, capital on these people, on those people. Right? The, the, the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst, the dirty, the filthy, right? The people that no one else wants to give time of day to. And his whole set of lost parables is just an answer to that question. You want to know why I would spend time with those people? Here it is, right? And so this week, we're going to look at the lost um, son. This passage gets a couple different names. Uh, it can be the lost son. It can be the parable of the lost sons, plural. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, some of you already know. It could be, uh, a lot of times, it's the passage of the prodigal son. Um, there's a couple uh, people in, in theological circles that like to call it the passage, the, the parable of the prodigal God, right? The word prodigal actually means lavish kind of graciousness. It's a, it's a lavish generosity, so when someone like lavishly heaps generosity on top of you, right, they, are being, they are being prodigal. And so the argument kind of goes that the real prodigal in this passage is less the son and more the father, right? And so it's been called the prodigal God. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite authors, uh, Tim Keller, has a book written about this passage that is well worth your time. And its title is Prodigal God, right? Because that's who is the prodigal in this story. The point is mountains of ink have been spilled writing about this. This is probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture. People today that don't know Jesus really at all have quite possibly heard of the parable of the prodigal son or sons or God. Right? And so this morning we'll spend some time diving into this passage together and then looking at how uh, we can glean some things from it. Because the reality is this. This is one of those stories where you can put yourself into every single character that we find inside of it at one point in your life or another. Right? You can relate to everyone. It's not that we are one specific person in the story, but we can be each and every character that we find in this parable. And so let's stand together as we read in Luke 15. We'll start in verse 11 and go through 32. The last two weeks, you've had it great. You've stood for maybe 10 seconds. This one's a little bit longer, but I believe you have it in you. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger." I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. But, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. 
And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in a field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came and then treated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. The parable has been called many things, right? Lost son, prodigal God, prodigal son, multiple sons. Um, in this parable, we, we see four major acts. Now, I'm usually not like the most eloquent uh, preacher. Like what I mean by that is a lot of times people love to have like the four points or they like to alliterate things. They have, you know, the three S's, the four T's or whatever. This is one of those few times where, where we actually can divide this up into what I call the four R's. Right? There's four different R's. Number one, the rebellion. Number two, the reckoning. Number three, the return. And number four, the resentment. Right? So we have rebellion, reckoning, return, and resentment. So if you are a note taker, this is one of those few times where you can actually outline things nicely and I'll make sense to you. Um, if that's you normally for all the other weeks, I'm really sorry. It's just not how my brain works. But today... Here you go. So we're going to look at all four of those, and in each one of those, we can, we can glean something about how we function in relation to God, who we are in the story at times, right? And how God works within our hearts and minds. And one of the things we learn more than anything is about our own hearts in the story and what drives us, which I think is really important as we seek to grow and walk in Christ. It's important to know what our hearts are doing before we can know what we should be doing with our hearts, right? And so uh, the story is also really unique in that we really can put ourselves into the shoes of every single character. You're going to find ways that you function like the lost son. You're going to find ways that you function like the older brother. You're going to find ways that you sometimes in ways function like the father himself. I know I see some of that in me and how I parents and those kinds of things. Not that I'm comparing myself to God in any stretch, but the way that a father loves his son. I, I get it in a way that I didn't before when I would read passages like this. Right? But, but we learn a little bit of each thing. So let's look first at the rebellion. Right? So there's, a, there's a, a father that has two sons. And so we're told that uh, we don't know if there's any daughters, but we know that in that time that was really kind of irrelevant when it comes to the division of property. And so the reason it's important that we have the father and the two sons is because it gives us the kind of blueprint for the economics of how it's going to work in the family. Right? There's two sons. Uh, In Jewish custom, the firstborn son was the most important. We see that today in things like the British monarchy still happening. The firstborn is the one who's significant and important, right? And so when we look at who's going to be king next, right? It's going to be William. It's not going to be Harry. It's not going to be Harry's children. He's kind of like 
I think what, like sixth or seventh? Somewhere here there's a royal who knows exactly where he is in the line. Um, but, but we're not going to go there. But the firstborn mattered. And because he mattered, the firstborn received the brunt of the inheritance. He, he essentially received what you would consider a double portion. And so if there's two sons, that means that the first son gets two-thirds of the inheritance. And the younger son would get one-third. So when the son, the younger one, demands his share of the inheritance, we're talking about one-third of all that the father owns. Right? The fact that he demands the inheritance tells us something about the way that that family dynamic functions. Right? The son, the younger son, clearly does not have a concern or a love for his father or his family. What the younger son loves is that which his father can provide for him. And so right off the bat, before we even get into the depths of the parable, we see ourselves, because here's the truth. There are times, many of us, most of us, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, we love God for what he can do for you. Right? But we don't necessarily always love God well simply for who he is. Right? Do you pursue the Lord simply for who he is? Because he's worthy and holy and deserving of your honor and glory and praise? Or is it a, well, I don't have to go to hell because of him, so I guess I should kind of do some things he says? Right? Are we in it when it comes to church for what we get, or are we in it because of who God is? This is a hypothetical, but let me ask you this. If salvation wasn't part of the realm of possibility, would we still be pursuing God? Simply for who he is? If God's response to you is, all of sinners deserve death and death you will have, would you spend this life still pursuing God simply because he's holy and worthy? Or do we walk after the Lord because of what we get? In the case of the younger son, he pursues the father for his stuff. And we know this because the father gives him that and then he runs off. It's kind of a shocking turn of events. The, the cultural appropriate response of the father for this would have probably been to kind of slap the son a little bit and tell him to get, right? But no, the, the father agrees. He says, okay. He divided up his stuff and he gave to the younger son that which was eventually due to him in, in his inheritance. And as soon as he receives what he wants, he runs off. Right? The father does this for one reason and one reason only, even though it's culturally weird for him to give all the money now and let him run off. Because the father realizes something that only a parent can realize. The young son is so far gone already that the only way he's going to come to his senses is by going off and learning the hard way. Right? The dad, sadly, with sorrow in his heart, gives him the inheritance and sends him on his way hoping and praying that he'll learn the hard life lessons that he needs to learn. Right? He's young. He's naive. He thinks he has it all figured out. How many of us were kids once or have kids now or did have kids once? That they, I don't know if you knew this, but most of your kids, when they were in their like, school-age years, were all smarter than you. Our house, we have this untapped thing. We have a, you know, a three-year-old boy who actually knows everything. It's pretty great. I don't need the internet because if I have a question, I just ask him and he tells me what it's like. 
And then I move on, and he's just so smart. He knows it all, better than me. Right? The young son had an immaturity, and he needed to grow up and grow up fast, and he needed to learn a hard lesson. Sometimes as parents, we let our kids fall so that they learn a hard lesson. Because if we coddle them and we keep them close all the time, they'll grow up and they won't figure out how to live through this hard life. Because this is a hard place to be. The world is harsh. Right? And so the father gives in, hoping and praying that the young son will learn an invaluable lesson by going off on his own. Right? Now the son runs off and we we kind of have this lavish living section, right? And it's not elaborated on, but later on, the, the older brother talks about prostitutes and stuff, so we can kind of get an idea for what the young brother did for a bunch of years with the inheritance that he had. He went and he lived the high life, right? He was throwing dollars left and right. He was throwing them at prostitutes. He was throwing them at friends. He was building himself a following of people. He had all kinds of people who probably loved him, who ran after him, who pursued him with everything, and, and, and it worked really great. He had a wonderful life. He had everything he possibly could have wanted. And then it runs out. Right? The money runs out. And I would venture this. I'm going to guess that the young son probably started to feel and think about home before the money ran out. Because there's a superficiality to the things that he was pursuing. And one of the things we learn as we pursue the things of the world is that no matter how much of it we get, there's always just an emptiness that prevails. Right? It never quite fills, it never quite satisfies. We get the, the thing we want and then we want the next thing. Uh, that's true of things that money can buy. That's true of things that money can't buy. Right? I'm a, I'm a here and now kind of thinker. Like I like to be present in the moments that I'm present. So for me to think about two weeks from now is more difficult than, than most people. My wife is a planner. So when we were dating, she was planning what married life would be like in our wedding. When we were married, she was planning what house we would buy. When we bought our first house, she was started planning what kids we would have. Now that we have kids, there's not a whole lot, like, big next things to plan. So now, like, she plans vacations. Many of which we'll never go on, but she plans them anyway, right? If you ever want to go on a vacation, just go find my wife and tell her, what's a good vacation? She'll give you like a binder itinerary of a trip that we've never had because she just likes to plan vacations. She thinks about what's next and what's next and what's next. Right? Some people do that, some people don't. Now, the son lost everything, squandering things that don't make him whole. And it just so happens that when he begins to run out of money, a famine hits. So that's the second part. There's a reckoning that begins to happen. The son learns the hard lesson that the father needed him to learn. Right? And there's a level of destitute that comes into play here that is beyond what we culturally can really understand. We are not told much right, about, about how his poverty went, but we do learn that he sold himself out to be a guy who feeds the pigs. And so there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's troublesome. Number one, pigs were taboo in Jewish culture, so they were gross, right? Like Jesus chooses these words intentionally, right? Jewish people didn't hang out near pigs. They were disgusting. Remember, Jews don't eat pork, even to this day, right? So pigs were un unclean, and so he is feeding a, an animal that is unclean. He is working for presumably a Gentile person, not a Jewish person, and so he is a good, upstanding Jew who had a name to himself, who is now one of the lowliest servants. He's a day laborer. He's not even a fully hired hand, 
right? He works kind of part-time for someone who's beneath him with animals that are unclean. And his life and his pay is so bad and he is so destitute that he's watching the pigs eat the slop out of the trough and he's going, that looks good. I wish I had some of that. Have you ever seen pigs eat? Do yourself a favor. Go home and YouTube pigs eating. And then imagine being in a position where you wish that was you. That's how destitute it gets. And in the moment, he has the reckoning. He realizes something. He realizes that, you know, my, my dad has a bunch of servants at home. And, and the people that used to wait on me hand and foot, they have it better than I do as a former son of his. Maybe I'll go back. And I know I can't go back culturally. I've, I've relinquished my sonship. See, culturally, if you took the inheritance, that, that was it. Like, you were cut off. You weren't a son anymore. You were the shamed black sheep of the family. You might have been shunned, right? Like, think of, like, today's kind of Amish shunning type of culture, right? Jewish culture was very much an honor-shame culture, and so you brought shame on your family, and so the family, you don't exist to them, right? And so the son thinks, man, I'm going to go back. Maybe, just maybe, I'll have the fortune that my dad will take me back as a servant. And so we, we see him rehearsing the speech. Right? He's like, oh, Father, against heaven and you have I sinned. And you can imagine as he decides to, 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 to turn back, he's rehearsing that speech over and over and over and over again. He's walking up the hill. He starts to see his estate off in the distance. And he's walking. He goes, Father, against you and heaven have I sinned. You know, take me back as a servant. Father against, no, that sounds dumb. Okay, Father against heaven and you, you and heaven. And he's rehearsing it and rehearsing it and rehearsing it. Because the reckoning has come that whatever he was pursuing wasn't worth pursuing. It filled momentarily, but now he was all alone. Where were all the friends that loved him so much? Well, here's where they were. The friends that loved him loved him for his stuff, not for him. Just like he loved his father for his stuff, not for him. So it comes full, full circle here. Three, the return. It opens, but when he came to himself. So it comes this realization, and he starts to walk back up the hill. He's going back to his father, and he's rehearsing, and in his mind, and he's nervous, and he's ready to get the words out. And the father sees him off in the distance. And then a couple things happen that are really, really, really strange. Number one, the father takes off running. I don't know what you, you know about Jewish culture, but uh, elder men did not run. You know the saying, I only run when I'm chased? Yeah. There are people, there were people at this time that were so much part, like honor culture, like an older man in Jewish culture did not run, that if a bear came, they might have just stood and taken it before they run. He was, it talks about how he was wearing his full garment, and so for him to run, he would have not only had to run, which is against countercultural stuff, he would have had to hike up his, his, his tunic and be able to run. And so to hike it up means to expose his legs, which a man also didn't do, right? That wasn't appropriate at that cultural time. That was a severe faux pas. That'd be the equivalent of today, just streaking across a soccer field, right? So he picks up and he runs 
towards the son. A father doesn't run towards his son. A son runs towards his father. It doesn't work this way. There is so much dishonoring things, so many dishonoring things in what the father's behavior exudes here that it's earth-shattering. And he sees, you know, the son sees the father running towards him and he starts running towards him and he's got his rehearsal. Father against heaven and heaven. And he gets to the dad and they're standing face to face and he s- starts to give his speech. Father against heaven and only... And the, and the dad cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish his spiel. He's not interested. Instead, what does he say? Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. There's a couple things here. Number one, the best garment. Who gets the best garment normally? Oldest son, right? Do you remember the whole Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat? That was the big deal. All the brothers were mad because the youngest son got the, got the coat. Now it's supposed to happen that way. It was supposed to be the oldest, and so they all hate him. That's why they sell him into slavery. He brings the coat. So number one, the coat goes him. Second, the ring, the signet ring gets handed to him. Put the ring on him. Put shoes on his feet. No son of mine is going to be barefoot and bring the fattened calf. The fattened calf was like the, the best of the livestock that you had at any given moment, whatever your economic abilities were, right? It wasn't like the skinny cow in the back that's going to provide nothing. It was like your, your fattest, most juicy Steak that you could think of. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to eat good tonight. Right? It'd be the equivalent of like, hey, we're not doing burgers for them. We're getting, we're getting ribs and brisket for this party. Right? We're not going to eat ground beef like savages. We're going to eat the good stuff. Right? He has this massive party that he then throws and he celebrates. The father immediately embraces and restores the son, and it goes against every ounce of Jewish culture and custom. That's what makes the Pharisees so angry when they hear this, because all they hear when they hear this story is like a bajillion Jewish laws being broken. Like, but, but the rules say that he's not a son anymore. Dad's you with me? Do you care about the rules if your lost son comes home? Right? I know some of you have lost sons. That you're praying will come home. If they come home, you're not going to restore them with everything they've got. You're not going to give them all the things that they don't deserve. You're not going to lavish upon them. You're not going to put the best coat and the best shoes and the equivalent of whatever the fattened calf today is. You better believe you will. You don't care what the custom is. That's your child. The father bestows unmerited love and grace and favor. And he gives the son that which he doesn't deserve to have. Right? All the son wanted was to be home under the protection of his father as a servant. Instead, what he gets is a restoration as a son. It's unbelievable. It demonstrates something about the father's love that is so incomprehensible to us. Until we have kids of our own. I could never imagine that there's a human being on the face of this earth that could wrong me beyond belief and it wouldn't cause me to love them any less. I didn't even feel that way when I got married. Britta and I made vows till death do us part, but there are things that Britta could do to me that would cause me to run away from her. It's possible, right? Every one of you knows it. 
Right? Divorce is not an option, but even the Lord makes provisions for it in certain cases. Right? There are things that Britta could do to me that would cause me to say, you know, I'm out. That's not healthy. There is nothing that my son or daughter could do to me that would cause me to disown them, to walk away, to stop loving them. It can't happen. They could wrong me. They could run off. They could go do whatever they want to do in life. They could rebel against me or the Lord or, or even their mom. There's nothing they could. I mean, I'd yell at them. I might kick them out of the house. I might do what the father did and say, go figure out life on your own. But listen, if you want to come back, the door's open. Always. Right? And so we see here in this parable the unbelievable, never-ending, thorough love of the father for all the children that would return home, no matter what. Right? The son comes back. The father welcomes him with open arms. And he bestows upon him the things that make him a son again, even the things which he doesn't deserve. Now, the last part of this is what we call the resentment. And so I think it's clearly, clearly easy to see ourselves as the younger son at times. We each have ways in which we rebel against the Lord, and hopefully the Lord wants us back. We can even put ourselves into the mindset of a father who would love his son so much that he would welcome him back with open arms, right? That's a love so incomprehensible. It can only be a parent's love. We get all those things. But I think as Christians, a lot of times, the place we find ourselves most often is the older brother. Right? Here's what happens. The brother comes back from working in the fields of the father. And he hears music and dancing and partying happening. So what we understand here is he was never even told of the return of his younger brother. Like, the father was so consumed with the, with the love of, of the son's return that he, he throws a party and people forget to tell the son about it. And so the whole time that this party has been kind of planned and is starting and there's dancing and food has been eaten, the son is still working in the field. No one ever even thought to go get him and say, hey, stop working. Your brother's home. We're going to have a party. They just leave him working. And he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's faithfully working in his father's field as one of his children. And he comes back and he sees the commotion and he, he has to ask a servant. He has to hear from one of the servants that his brother's returned. I said, oh man, you, should, you need to come see it. It's quite the party. Your dad, listen, the brother came back and he took his, his coat, his best coat and his shoes and, his, and the signet ring of the family. He put it on him. Oh, and he slaughtered the fattened calf. So we're all eating like royalty in there. You got to come check it out. But the son can't go in because he's mad. All right. Now, before we get into the, the, the kind of ramifications here, we have to acknowledge the son's madness, his anger is pretty justified culturally. Because that's his coat by birthright. And that's his ring by birthright. And that fattened calf is the best of the livestock that is part of the inheritance that someday ought to be his as well by birthright. And if you remember economics at the beginning, the younger son has received his inheritance already, and he's taken it away from the family, and he squandered it on lavish living, on prostitutes, on indulgences, on all kinds of sins. That money's gone. So every single penny being spent on this party is part of the property of the older brother. It's legally his as inheritance. So the dad is spending really the brother's money. Right? It's not like today where it's like, <laughs> kids, you own nothing. Right? 
Graham will do that at my house. He'll be like, but it's mine. I'll be like, you don't understand. You don't own anything. <laughs> like, the clothes you're wearing, those are my clothes that you graciously get to borrow until you grow out of them. Right? I have a friend who uh, has a bratty teenager with phones, and they took the phones away, and the kids freaked out, and they're like, wait, you, know, that's not, you think that's your phone? No, you're leasing that from me. <laughs> that's my phone, and I will do whatever I want with it. Back then, it didn't work that way. The inheritance was due to the son, and the dad would steward it properly because family lineage and carrying on and making sure that the generations were provided for was significant. So the dad really was spending the brother's future money on the party, and he said, look, I'm tired of it. I've been working faithfully for you. While my brother was off buying prostitutes and making your name terrible, defaming you and your whole family, I stuck by you. I always did what I was supposed to. I always listened to you. I was an obedient son. I honored you for your sake. And I, was, I did what you wanted me to do and what you asked me to do. And when you, when you needed something, I was there for you. And when he left, I picked up his slack and I worked both of our jobs. And at no point did you even think to so much as kill a goat for me and my friends to celebrate. But he comes back after doing God knows what and he gets the fattened calf. Are you kidding me? Listen, I don't care what God says. That's a valid anger. If you have siblings, you understand, right? Like, what are you doing, Dad? Why would I continue to behave or honor you or walk next to you or be loyal to you if this is how it's going to work? I can just do whatever I want and come back and get the fattened calf. Maybe I'll go off for a couple years with my share of the inheritance. See how you do. And the father's reply, I love it because it's not angry. Like the father sets him straight, but he's, he's so gracious. He comes outside to meet him and the, young, the older brother unloads all of this stuff on dad and dad just kind of smiles. <laughs> he says, look, um, you got to understand something, son. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. Right? But... It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I like that he says it that way. It was fitting. It's almost like the dad saying, yeah, no, see, look, I understand that all this money that we're spending on the party is really your money, but this is how it should be spent. Like, in other words, if, if, if I had died and actually left you the inheritance and the brother had returned... Like, this is how you should have spent it. So, so I'm really just, whether the money is yours or still mine, um, it's being used in the way that it should be used. Because your brother was lost and dead, and now he's alive and found. And that's worthy of celebration. And that's it. That's all there is to it. We're doing with the funds what we should be doing with the funds because we're celebrating the finding of a lost of our own. We're not told if the brother ever goes in or not. We don't know. I imagine he doesn't. That's okay. Right? Father gives him this gentle rebuke. He keeps it loving, but he tells him, look, you need to understand that He's our, he's our son. And it doesn't matter how far he strays. It doesn't matter how far the sheep wanders. It doesn't matter how lost the coin is. 
When, it, when it's found, when it's returned, when it comes home, there's, there's a jubilance and a celebration that you can't even imagine. And we'll spend what we need to to celebrate properly. The Pharisees, to them, this would have been the most offensive story that you can imagine. Because right? I think it's obvious, if you're, if you're in the context and you're hearing Jesus tell the story, it's pretty obvious to the Pharisees and to those that are listening in that they are the older brother of the story. I don't think anyone's going to find that to be somehow shocking. right? And so they're literally hearing Jesus kind of smack them down. Like, there was once some people who were this way, and they stunk. And they're like, are we the people? Well, I didn't say that, but she said it, right? And so the Pharisees are offended, but Jesus needs them and us to understand something really important about sin and lostness. And I think this is where this story hits home. It teaches us about the various ways in which can be lost. And in this case, there's two ways. It's not just straight rebellion, right? A lot of times we think of lostness, of us being lost as how much we rebel against God how distant we are from him, how much we do what we want versus what God says, right? how much we can be in obedience to his word and, and how much we follow him and how much we give in church and how often we're here, what our attendance record is for Bible studies and all those things. We think of like if we're here and we're present and we're doing what God wants us to do and we're keeping the commandments and all those things, then right, that's, that's what gets us close and, and that's what rebellion is. And if we don't do those things, then we're rebellious and we're far from God. But lostness can come in many different shapes and forms. And I think there's no one that puts this better than, than Tim Keller, um, who, you know, we recently lost. This is what he says in his book, Prodigal God. It's been like 10 years since I read this. I had to look up where this was. They both were using the Father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of his rules diligently. Hear that again. You can be alienated from God both by breaking all of his rules or by diligently keeping all of them. Right? The younger brother walked away from his father. He did everything he wanted to. He rebelled and he came to his senses. And when he came home, he begged for servanthood and he received sonship. The older brother was filled with pride and malice. He also was only after the father for what he could give to him. He just did it in a more gentle and respectful way. And a lot of times, I think as Christians, we do that. We're equally rebellious against the Lord, but we do it in an upstanding-looking way. We're here, right? We're dressed to the nines. We have our stuff together. We volunteer. Maybe we serve as elders or deacons. Right? We're always the first person to, to jump in to be a greeter when they're needed. We'll help in every way we can. We, we do this church thing quite well. Right? Maybe we have families and on the way here, there's just screaming in the cars, but then the door's open and man, we're the best Christians you've ever seen. Right? But our hearts can also be equally darkened. We can be doing those things somehow to earn a favor which isn't ours to earn. And in, in this case, we see that both of them have a self-righteousness. One's just more blunt than the other. A lot of times we as Christians have an unbelievable amount of self-righteousness. We're just really good at hiding it behind religion. Right? We're like that older brother. And what happens is people come in 
that are rough around the edges, and the Lord bestows grace, and the church bestows grace, and pays attention, and, and celebrates, and you're like, well, where's my celebration? I've been faithfully, I'm a founding member. I've been walking faithfully in this church for years. Where's my attention and focus? Right? And the, the Lord's response to you is this. <laughs> you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Right? In God's kingdom, Jesus' death and resurrection are the only thing that warrants any special favor. If you're here trying to think of what you can get out of this place for being a good, faithful Christian, it's going to be a rough go for you. I'm really sorry. On some level, I think we all relate to this story. We've all been guilty of rebelling against God. We've all been guilty of loving God for what he can do for us. We've all, at times, squandered what is his for our own benefit. And every one of us has snubbed our nose at the sin of another person and thought that God must love us more than them. We've all done it. Maybe not bluntly and overtly, but somewhere in the back of our minds. Our sins just aren't as bad as the next guy. Like, surely God has to love them just a little less, or at least like them a little less. He doesn't. The most rebellious, sinful human being out there in the world is loved by God the same as you. He is. They are. Our favor doesn't come from the way that we behave. Our favor comes from the way that God has been at work in our lives and by how Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins so that we, through faith in him, might be reconciled to God. And that's the only thing that reconciles us to God. And we have to get that into our heads and then throw ourselves at his feet. The younger brother got there. One of the cool things that I read this week is, uh, this relates back because we just talked about our Beatitude series a couple weeks ago. If you watch the approach of the younger brother when he goes back to the father, he's actually exuding like four of the Beatitudes that you're supposed to have, right? He's got the meekness down, right? Like he's, he's, he's the sorrowful one, right? Blessed are the, are the brokenhearted, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Like he comes back as someone who's poor in spirit, who's brokenhearted at his own mess. He exudes the Beatitudes in the most beautiful way when he comes back to his father. So at the end of the story, the younger brother is better off than the older one who's been faithful all those years. Because in God's kingdom, things get to be upside down once in a while. It's just the way it goes. Right? So my challenge for you this morning is this. Are you self-aware enough to fall at the feet of the cross in humble reliance on Jesus instead of your own self-righteousness? Are you willing to acknowledge that you're truly no better than the most wayward, lost people out there? And are you willing to accept that merciful response of Jesus that he gives to you the same as he gives to them, who picks you up and says, no, 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 not servants, you are sons and daughters. I pray that we all might do that and that it shapes not just how we see ourselves, but how we see the world around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is prodigal. God, as we fall short, that you lavish grace and love upon us. Lord, you forgive sins that we don't even know we have. Sins of self-righteousness and 
and thinking that we're better than others and, and sins that are little deceptions in our hearts that we've somehow have bought into because we think more about the American dream than about the gospel. And you love us. You pick us up like children. You hold us and you say, whatever, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever your lot in life, when you return to me, I will give you my coat and my ring and my shoes and the most fattened calf, and I will bring you back unto myself, not as a servant, but as a son and daughter. We pray that we might have a, a reliance on you. We pray that each and every morning we might wake up to the realization of our own undeservedness. So as we go out and about the world, when those we encounter who seem so distant from you, Lord, we don't look at them as lesser, but we look at them as equals who need bread and water, just the way that we've needed bread and water, and that we might be compelled to go to them, to help them find it, and then celebrate when they do. Because you are good. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. Be with us this week as we go out into this world. Help us to share the gospel with all that we meet. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, amen.